You're listening to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. The Sundance Film Festival was about six months ago, but lately a number of the films from this year's lineup are finally making it to theaters. Movies like The Hero with Sam Elliott, The Big Sick with Kumail Nanjiani, and Beatrice at Dinner with Salma Hayek have already hit. Others like Landline with Jenny Slate and To the Bone with Keanu Reeves are rolling around this month. And we have stuff like Patty Cakes, Ingrid Goes West, and Crown Heights coming up in August. My guest today premiered his latest, A Ghost Story, at the fest. And to my mind, it's the single greatest film of the year so far. His name is David Lowry, and we're very happy to have him on the show today. Thanks for coming on, David. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so start there with Sundance. You've been there a few times, yeah? Yeah, this was my third time there. So what was the experience like this time compared to other trips? I'm sure completely different. It's completely different, but at the same time, it never doesn't feel like the first time. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no time like the first time. The first time you go to Sundance, it's it's one of the best, it'll be one of the best experiences of any filmmaker's life, undoubtedly. But it, you know, it always presents itself anew as a, as a place <laughs> of, of great joy and, and fear and Frustration and and uh, and sleepless chaos. nights, yeah, chaos. It it always manages to reinvent itself in exactly the same way every time you go with a new movie. So, mm-hmm. with this movie, it was very close to the first, like, very similar to when I went with my first short film. Probably because you know this was a movie that we'd made on you know micro budget on our own terms, and we just had no idea what the world would make of it. And it felt like we were just bringing something very small and handmade to. A giant industrial complex in the snow. Yeah. So it was a it was a very intense experience, but ultimately a very like a very beautiful one. It was a wonderful a wonderful festival for me this year. You know, I find this film uh, difficult to talk about because like once you start explaining it, it feels like it kind of starts to unravel, and you stop doing it justice. You know, just the more you try to detail it, um, you know, it, and and that goes for more than just like the outer like ghost under a sheet kind of vibe i mean just the metaphysical kind of ideas you're dealing with the ideas are so big and yet the movie is so modest the production is so modest as you said it was micro budgeted um and you know i feel like only the only relatively recent film that put me in this kind of headspace was the fountain by Darren yeah. Aronofsky, which I, which is not at all like this movie, by the way. It's it's obviously a completely different movie, but it's another movie that was dealing with these huge ideas and trying to drill them down into an intimate fashion. So I've come to kind of explaining it as like it's it's a movie about a spirit, uh, meaning a soul more than a specter, mm-hmm. and the the space it inhabits in the universe. That's, so hopefully that's, that's not a hatchet job. That's pretty much how I describe <laughs> it. I, I describe it as a ghost haunting one space for. A long, long time. Yeah. And um, I love that you bring up The Fountain because that movie was very meaningful to me. Mm. I love that movie. Me too. And I remember, you know, following along with it from the first hints of his existence all the way through the aborted Brad Pitt version and mm-hmm. then being so happy to finally see it come to fruition in the form that it took. And it really it is a movie that does deal with very big ideas, but in a very simple fashion. And it's very embraceable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't like... It's not hitting you over the head with philosophy, but it just it's a very big, embraceable, and very human idea that it is at its concept at its core. And uh and so I like that you see a parallel there because you know, being that I like that movie, I'm sure that there's something of that in a ghost story. Mm-hmm. So where does an idea like this begin for you? What's the germ of it? Where did it first grab you and start to snowball? I And in guess, addition if if I can jump yeah. in, in addition to that 
I'm also curious, like, how did you explain it to people to get them interested, to get them on board? Like, how do you, how do you kind of convey your idea once you kind of it, you give birth to it? You know, when it's something this difficult to pin down. You yeah, know? I wrote it very quickly, but the idea of a haunted house movie with a ghost represented by someone wearing a bed sheet was something I've been wanting to do for a while. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if it would be a scary movie, that, like a high concept horror film that just had a goofy element in the middle of it or a weird art film or maybe just like a video installation. It was just something I liked. It was an image that I really responded to and I've seen it utilized elsewhere and I just wanted to have my version of it because I just love that image. And around the time that you know we were finishing up my last movie... I had gotten in an argument with my wife about where we are going to live. And so the idea of home was very present on my mind and how you know one's attachment to one's home can be both a wonderful thing but also hold you back. And so I just sat down one night and wrote the script. And the first draft was 10 pages. The second draft was about 30 pages. And you know it was written within the space of a week and didn't change that much before we shot it. And I sent it to my partners in crime, James M. Johnson and Toby Hobricks, who produce all my movies, and, and just said, let's make this this summer. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't have to explain much to them because they, we just always make things together. So it's sort of like there's a trust there. But in terms of getting other folks on board, whether it be that my cinematographer or Casey and Rooney, I found the most important thing to do was to show, like, provide a visual. So I just took some Gregory Crudson photographs and... Uh, without permission, photoshopped a ghost into a lot of them. And that was sort of uh, the visual the story, representation yeah. of what I wanted this movie to be. And and it was very clear. That was that was exactly, everyone saw those and was like, okay, we get this. And it was, you know, there was some question about running time, like whether or not it would be a short or a feature. Like Rooney read the script and loved it, but wasn't sure if it could sustain itself for feature length. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, just let's not worry about that. It'll be as long as it needs to be. And, and let's not put the pressure on ourselves to you know, feel like this is a movie that has to be a film that will hit theaters and sell for a certain number of amount of money. Like, let's just make this be what it needs to be and, mm-hmm. and make it let let it feel right to us. I'm glad you mentioned that about home because uh, I that hit me in the moment and I actually had not thought about that slice of it since. But that really resonated me with me when I was watching it because just to be a little personal, uh, you know, I'm in a time where I've lost grandparents those homes that we went to for so many years are in the process of Mm -hmm. being sold or whatever. So you start to feel that slip away. And, uh, that, I don't know, that just really hit me. Was there, was there something going on other than, you know, you you guys talking about where you wanted to live beyond that? Uh, you know, personally speaking, just this idea of losing something. Yeah. Not in in the immediate sense, but I was certainly aware of exactly what you're talking about occurring in the future. You know, like the idea that the house that my grandparents, uh, live in is currently unoccupied and my parents keep talking about like the fact that we're going to have to sell it and I, I kind of like desperately want to just go buy it just so we can preserve it because I want to totally. have that space to go back to would I ever go back there? I don't know it's in Wisconsin like I'd have to fly back to Wisconsin just to go steep myself in the nostalgia of being in a space mm-hmm. but that is important to me like I want to have that you know I, I, I don't want to shut the door on that opportunity or that possibility I want to have the uh, the always have the possibility to go back to those places in my life where so much joy and comfort was had at one point or another. And that is something that is wonderful to me. It's meaningful to me, but also, you know, in certain instances can hold me back. And that can be as simple as like 
having too much crap from my childhood that I cart from one apartment to, you know, from apartment to house to wherever I'm living. Like I'm just dragging boxes of detritus from my childhood with me. Mm -hmm. It's not really holding me back, but it's a little bit of, you know, you have to think about closet space in the bigger scheme of things. When my wife and I were having an argument where to live, she really wanted to live one place. I really wanted to live in another. And, and we both kind of drew a line in the sand and, for a moment, I could see a point where our relationship could end over this one issue, which would have been ridiculous because we love each other very much and we are very happy together and we never really fight. But this was the first time like where I just saw like some difference of opinion that was so strong that I could see a way in which it could end things. And that was unsettling to me. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit. And I realized, you know, I've got this very strong sense of home because my parents created that for me when I was growing up and I've tried to find that wherever I go and wherever I go I just lay down roots and they run fast and thick and I don't want to leave when it's time to leave and that's fine like that's who I am but I also need to be able to adjust to the circumstances I find myself in yeah and to be able to let go so that's a big part of what this movie is about interesting yeah uh who won the argument um, we both compromise? did because we compromised because <laughs> we, we did. We stayed in L.A. Then we moved back to Texas to after this movie was made. Um, and then we're, you know, eventually going to wind up back here again. So we kind of like feel like being a uh, bi-coastal, even though Texas doesn't count as a coast, is the answer. <laughs> Austin has exploded, by the way, in the last like seven years. I, I, that's I why just I live in Dallas. The, <laughs> I, I just saw that. Do you? I thought, yeah. I thought it was Austin. I just saw the pictures recently of like the downtown area. In 2010, like the skyline versus now, I thought someone was just playing it looks a joke. Like, it looks like Miami crap. a little bit. Yeah, like Miami grew up in the middle of Texas, and I love Austin to death. Um, but because I grew up, because I'm a nostalgic person, grew up in Dallas, I decided to just stay there because it was getting so expensive to, <laughs> to live in Austin. Yeah, you can probably blame it on LA people coming up there. It's okay. I understand. It's beautiful there. <laughs> Uh, so this is your sec. Is this the second time you've gone out with uh, Rooney and Casey on a movie? Yes. After Anthem Body Saints, um, what is it about their chemistry that uh, brought you back? I mean, they just like each other. It's like crazy. Like they they really changed what Anthem Body Saints was just by doing a scene together. Mm-hmm. We shot, you know, what was originally meant to be not a love story turned into a love story because they just had so much chemistry, and you can't quantify that or you know put you know. A cause behind it other than that they just get along it just it's kismet and uh and so on ain't the body saints you know we just ended up adding a lot more material for the two of them because i wanted more with them and originally it was going to be very like just a little bit at the beginning a little bit at the end and that was it mm-hmm. we we added a bunch more um and then with so with this film because there's so little on the page for these characters and then particularly so little with the two of them together I wanted to ground the film in that chemistry from the get-go so you would feel that something was lost mm-hmm. when Casey's character dies. I wanted you to feel that something had been torn asunder. And I knew that if I brought the two of them together, that within the, me- within the space of one or two scenes, they would ground this relationship in a very real and emotional and wonderful and tactile way, and the people would just understand that they care for one another. Mm-hmm. So it was a way to achieve a certain shorthand given the amount of running time the movie was going to have and the amount of time they would have together. And uh, and also just the characters, there wasn't much to them on the page. They didn't even have names, and they still don't in the finished film because I didn't want to assign too much to them. I didn't want to pretend to the audience that we're going to have the story of these two characters and then pull the rug out from under them. I wanted it to be pretty, you know, 
pretty quick that we get into what the movie's actually about. You know, he dies within the first five or ten minutes. So, um, but those five or ten minutes are crucial in terms of establishing where the movie goes. Mm-hmm. Did you have them in mind when you were writing? Not when I was writing, but as soon as it was done. I mean, I didn't have anything in mind when I was writing because it was just so fast. It's so it's so funny to think about it, the writing process in this because how fast did you write it so I can get upset about it? I mean, the first draft. <laughs> Was a, was one evening, but it was only ten pages. So it's like right. you can't, no need to get upset because there wasn't much to it. <laughs> you know, it's probably like probably like two thousand words total in that in that document. And then I expanded it to, to thirty pages as the as it started to take you know a stronger shape. But that even that only took probably a week. So I'm a slow writer. It takes me forever to write things. Yeah. And this was a rare instance where I just you know partially because there's no dialogue and dialogue is what I usually spend the most time on. It just kind of just went very quickly, and then it was done. And then I started you know assigning names to things in the script, whether it be actors or cinematographers or my production designer. I was like, okay, now here's what we're going to do to make this movie happen. And one of those things was to just call Casey and Rooney or text them because I'm a texter and uh, see if they were interested in making a weird movie in Texas over the summer. Uh, you're coming off of, I wanted to venture out a little bit. You're yeah. coming off of uh, Disney's uh, Pete's Dragon, which uh, I, I thought was fascinating when you were called on to do the movie because that seems like something Disney, that machine that could be like a wood chipper yeah. for a filmmaker. And, uh, you know, first of all, how did you like working with, Di- I mean, obviously enough that you're coming back for Peter Pan, but yeah. uh, what was it like working with this giant conglomerate on something like that? I mean, it was great. I, I loved it. Like the folks at this studio, like Sean Bailey is just a wonderful connoisseur of cinema and a wonderful producer in his own right. So they, they want to make good movies there and I want to make good movies too. So we were on, we were, we were in agreement from the beginning but um, I was certainly worried every step of the way that because it is a conglomerate and there is, you know, the board of directors and so many, not cooks in the kitchen, kitchen, but so many voices that you have to acknowledge and listen to mm-hmm. that the movie would become something I didn't want it to be. You know, every step of the process, I was waiting for someone to tell me that I had to make the dragon talk or something <laughs> like that, you know, and that never happened. So I was on edge for a large portion of the entire three years we spent on that movie. But unnecessarily so, mm-hmm. because ultimately they were in full support of the movie I wanted to make. I wanted to make this movie for them, and we just were able to make a movie that made us all very happy. And because it was such a great relationship, I'm being very careful with our next collaboration because I want to keep on that train. I want to mm-hmm. keep making them happy. I want to make a movie that I like again mm-hmm. and uh, make something that's personal for me while also satisfying the needs of a big studio like that. Um, but it was a great experience. I didn't, you know, I, I started off, you know, that project began right before Ain't the Body Saints premiered at Sundance. So it was sort of ancillary to that. It wasn't a, it wasn't a result of that movie, but you know, the, um, but certainly that played a part of it. Like people took me a little more seriously because they knew this movie was coming out, but it was a short film that I made called Pioneer, which was about, was about a, a father telling his son a bedtime story. And I think that's what really got the producers of Pete's Dragon excited about what, I could bring to that. And at that point, I was just a screenwriter with my partner, Toby Halbrooks. We were just writing it. And we didn't embark upon the process of uh, making it with me as a director for another year. We spent a year on the script before that even entered the equation. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, of Peter Pan, I mean, I don't, I don't know where you're at on it now, but I am very curious just because that's a story we've seen many, many times from many angles. So, like, what are your ideas in terms of coming at it differently and, and presenting something fresh? I've got those ideas. I don't want to reveal, reveal them here, them. but I do okay. want, I do acknowledge that there are a lot of versions of this material 
They're, like there's there that is a big question. It's like why do we need another Peter Pan movie? Um, at the same time, it is an evergreen property to a certain extent, and I do believe that if you can do it right, it kind of like makes that question irrelevant. You can mm-hmm. kind of you can kind of make people feel like they're seeing it for the first time. That would be the challenge I have set for myself. Um, and you know, it's tough though. I love the PJ Hogan version. I think that is the perfect version of Peter Pan. So like, what else can I bring to the table? I have some ideas. I'm working on it uh, with Toby again. We're in the the screenwriting phase still. And if it feels right, we'll make it. And I am excited about that possibility, but I also want it to feel right. So we're just going to see, see where that process takes us on the page before we, before we embark on the, the great journey of, of, and you know, the great thing is it'll take long enough to make, but by the time it comes out, it'll have been at least five years since the last version. Yeah, so, that's good. so that's good. You get a little distance. <laughs> well, just broadly speaking, I mean, you know, you look at something like Pete's dragon and, uh, there, there's something about the tone and scale there. I mean, with, with Peter Pan, do you expect it to be big? Do you expect it to be whittled down? It'll be down bigger than Pete's Dragon, yeah. just by nature of what it is. Yeah. But it's important for me to not fall victim to just bloat and scope because a movie feels a need to be big. Like mm-hmm. If you could make uh, a giant summer blockbuster feel intimate, which can't happen. I mean, I feel uh, Fury Road managed that pretty mm-hmm. effectively, even though it was nonstop you know, thrills from start to finish. Uh, I think Planet of the Apes achieves that this I year. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I'm it, very yeah. excited to see that. So that would be my goal. Like, I don't want to just like rehash the final battle from any one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies at the end of this film, mm-hmm. except throwing some flying kids. You know, that's not my intention, nor would I be personally interested in seeing that. Mm-hmm. So it's always like trying to find that balance. Like, yes, this is a movie that will probably cost a certain amount of money. It has to have spectacle to it to justify that cost. Um, and at the same time, I want to make myself happy as a moviegoer. And the last thing I want to see is just another pointless battle just because it feels like it's the third act of the movie and they need to have a battle. So finding that balance will be tricky. I do feel up to the challenge, but it's definitely like that's one of the things that's on my mind. And again, like I had such a great relationship with Disney on Pete's Dragon. I want to make sure we keep that going in a a good fashion. And if we ever feel like this isn't the right fit or anything like that, then we'll find something else because – Again, big fans of them over there. Good luck with that. I'm very interested in that. Uh, I want to talk about film editing. Uh, uh-huh. You edited your your film this time, Ghost Story. You've edited other films like Upstream Color. If, if anyone hasn't seen Upstream Color, highly recommend. Go it. check out Upstream <laughs> Color. Uh, you, you've never seen anything like it. Um, but how does your work as an editor, you think, uh, impact your work as a director? Like, how does it make you a better director? It really plays a huge part in it. You know, it's still my favorite part of the process. And to a certain extent, when I'm on set, all I'm doing is just building a library of material that I can then wreak havoc on with in the editing room, or wreak havoc on the editing room with. Mm-hmm. Um, I begin the editing process with the script. I'm always thinking about transitions. I'm always thinking about how one scene is going to cut to the next and the impact that's going to have and what the shot will be that cuts from, you know, that brings us from one scene to the next. And then when you're on set, you're constantly thinking in terms of efficiency. Like, is this the right way to tell this part of the story? Is this shot the best shot for this moment? How will I utilize this shot? How might I utilize this shot in a way that I didn't initially anticipate when I first conceived of it? All of those things are constantly running through my head because I'm just shooting the movie for the edit. And when I get to the edit it feels like I'm starting over from scratch. All of that preparation, all of that work, all those all those uh, connections I was trying to build in kind of go out the window because at that point, 
I'm just working with what I've got to work with and going to make the, the movie's going to become what it becomes. It usually goes through a long process of, you know, kind of like a, the thing in the John Carpenter movie. It just turns into all these <laughs> weird monsters and mutations and, and, and becomes unrecognizable for a little while. And then ultimately, it works its way back to what it was supposed to be. And the end product, by and large, is always really close to what the script was. But for some reason, I can't just do that from the outset. I have to go through this long process of creating all sorts of mutant versions of the movie before I can actually get back to what I intended to do. And uh, so I'm in that right now with the movie I just finished, and it's really interesting. Like I know that six months from now, I'll have a movie that is very close to what I wrote, probably. But right now, I'm just feeling the need to just move scenes around and try out different things and just you know punch the footage in the face a little bit and see what happens, <laughs> because... Doing that does yield interesting results, and sometimes that point it does give you great ideas of where you can take the footage that you hadn't expected. But it also just helps you familiarize yourself with it and get used to the movie you made. And a huge part of the editorial process is just getting used to that movie you made, which is very existential and very alarming at first. At first, you're like, <laughs> "What have I done? What have I wrought upon the world with this <laughs> stuff? This footage is bizarre and doesn't mean anything." And, and then you realize that it does, and it's, it all settles down. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about Old Man and the Gun there. Yeah. Uh, how did that go? What did you learn on that movie? It's a, I think you're working with Searchlight on that? Yeah, or? Searchlight's going to be putting it out. And uh, they're, you know... Casey again. Casey's in it. Uh, Robert, Robert Redford, Redford stars Sissy in Spacek. it. Sissy Spacek. Sissy Spacek, Tom Waits, Danny Glover, Tika Sumter. Really great, great cast. cast. Uh, J.D. Washington, a bunch of cool kids, a bunch of folks who have never been in a movie before. Some reoccurring characters from Anthem Body Saints. We just bring them. We brought everybody <laughs> along for this one. Um, and it was my first attempt to make something fun. Well, I, I, that's not true because Pete's Dragon was meant to be fun, but it was also just really sad. And this movie is meant to that be... That first scene in Pete's Dragon killed me, man. It's like I, a really sad movie. <laughs> Even the ending is happy, but also kind of sad. This one is supposed to be lighthearted. It's supposed to be... You know, Robert Redford hired me to make this movie four years ago, and over the course of those four years, we made Pete's Dragon, and I got to know him a little bit. And ultimately, this is sort of a tribute to him and his legacy. It uh, plays into some of the iconography that he's known for. It also is like harkens back to my favorite film of his, which is Downhill Racer mm. by Michael Ritchie. And it, it's got just a fun, loose, you know, vibrant quality to it. I don't know if it's going to work. I mean, all that's, that's, that's all stuff that I'm trying to this do. This is the aim. Yeah. yeah, that's the aim. It's very loose. I mean, we shot on 16 millimeter. We tried to make it feel oh, as cool. like as as rough around the edges as we possibly could. You know, the, we we were embracing the idea that the camera would bump sometimes when it was on a dolly and moving quickly. We tried to just always delight ourselves every step of the way, and uh, and there's not much plot to it. So we'll, I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's based on a true story, so there's a lot going into it, but in the making of it we just sort of tried to have fun and tried to have fun with him because he's such a wonderful actor a wonderful presence and and he just he wanted to have fun that was his goal was to every step of the way make it fun so we'll see how it turns out i uh, i know i'm pushing my own personal boundaries as to what i'm good at and i'm trying out new things but i feel like if i'm not trying out new things i'm failing in some way so we'll find out when it, uh, when it comes out next year cool and then also, uh, I was just poking around beforehand doing some research. I didn't realize this. You directed an episode of Rectify. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which uh, I think is one of the best shows of the it's last a really like, great show. number of yeah. however many years. Uh, you know, 
were you a fan of that series in general, just like where it went and everything? Because you did one episode. I didn't know if that was just like you came on to do some work or whatever. No, I, I'm a, I've been I've known uh, Ray McKinnon for a little while, mm-hmm. the the creator of the show, and then Scott Teams, who was a writer and producer on the film. Uh, was a was a friend of mine because he had a film called That Evening Sun mm-hmm. that was on the festival circuit with my first feature Saint Nick. So we'd known each other for a long time, and when and I also know Mark Johnson and Melissa Bernstein over at Grand Via. We've been uh, friends and you know looking for something to do together for years at this point, uh, almost a decade at this point. So it was just the right fit. Like we all, it was just like a bunch of folks that I knew and that they needed to fill out their roster of directors, and I had. Uh, time in my schedule to do it and it was a really great experience I don't I, I, I'd never done television before I didn't know what to expect and I remember going up to one of the producers and apologizing because I felt like I wasn't doing enough I felt like <laughs> I felt like I was like I, sh- I, I feel like I need to be doing more but there's not that much to do because Ray is such a strong creative visionary and this was his baby and he knew what it needed and, and the <clears> actors <throat> were there working with him every day so it was a really interesting process because not only was I directing but I was also getting to just kind of sit on the sidelines to a certain extent and watch how Ray worked. And that was a really, a very educational experience and also one that has benefited me as a director, like watching how he directs actors, you know, all the performances he got out of that show. It's such an amazing series in terms of just what the actors are doing. Yeah. And that's all him. Like I, you know, I would never take credit for an iota of that in the episode that I directed because he had built that so thoroughly and developed it so thoroughly. And uh, I had learned, I'd read going into it that if on an episodic television show if you're not the director of the pilot you know if you can get one or two ideas across of your own in every episode while also supporting the vision of the creator then you've succeeded and so I feel like I did that I got two shots in there that I feel (laughs) were mine and I lay claim to them and the rest of it was me doing my best to help Ray make a really great series. That's a great show, and it ended well, which is like increasingly rare. It seems like you know they, they ended. They they knew it was going to end, and and it was. I, I'm sure he knew. So much of that show, he was like just coming up with not as he went, but just like you know, he was just pushing and pulling and trying to find the right way to get to where it needed to go. And I, I he would never tell anyone. You know, he was he would always tell like make up answers like he's like this is the episode where we reveal that daniel did it and then he'd come up with like all, like he would constantly be just joking about that but i'm sure i know he knew the whole way through what where it was going to go and then uh, last thing here just to bring it back to ghost story uh just tell me about working with a24 this is such a unique company um they uh are coming off this miraculous best picture win yeah. last year and uh you know just what's the environment like there for an artist it's phenomenal not that you would say anything bad if it was. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's like it's like guys. Uh, just let me let me lay out the truth about A twenty four here. No, A twenty four is exactly as cool a company as you could, as you would hope based yeah. on the movies that they distribute. I think they make their taste very clear with the movies they choose to distribute. Mm-hmm. I think they make their creative bones very clear with the ways in which they market them, and they just have fun with it. They have good taste and they have fun with that good taste. And when we were first developing this project in the two weeks that we had to develop it before we started <laughs> shooting it, th- that was sort of the pipe dream. You know, we knew we had this concept that was, for lack of a better term, high concept. It was someone wearing a bed sheet. We knew that that could be a great marketing hook. We knew that it could go horribly awry in the wrong hands. But we knew that if things worked out, if this turned out to be a feature film, if it was a feature film that was worth watching, that maybe there's a chance in hell that A24 would be interested in putting it out because who would do a better job with such a high concept idea than them. So the fact that that worked out is 
just you know makes me very happy it's a dream come true uh, literally and they have not disappointed me i just am in awe every day of like the ideas they're coming up with to get the movie out there they support it fully they know what it is they're not pretending it's something it's not and i mean have you heard about the ghost store that they opened up yeah, in new york just heard about that unbelievable like it's like a it's just a goofy idea to open up a ghost <laughs> store it's like a pun you know it's like a pun on the title and yet going to it is the most remarkably complimentary experience to watching the movie you could imagine they should bring it here i wish they would it's going to be open to the end of july in new york if you go to a ghost dot store you can also i think they give away four or five sheets a day bed sheets <laughs> like ghost costumes a day and they're all based on they're like a stripped down version of the ghost costume used in the movie and but if you are in new york that's a funny to, thing to say by the way a stripped strip, down oh, version of something that is so, so stripped down as the it costume is. was so it was a it was a to-do it wasn't simple but it, at all but i know yeah, yeah. i've heard about that yeah. but it, it's amazing and you go there the closest corollary I can find is going to Harry Potter world and going to Ollivander's wand shop and having the wand <laughs> choose you it's very similar to that it's like an, it's a brief 30 minute immersive experience that prepares you for the movie it complements the movie but also there's no branding there so you could just wander in off the street and not have any idea that it has anything to do with the movie you just have this very strange personal somewhat meaningful experience that uh is all them. They, they came up with it and they understood the movie to such a great extent that they could take what seems like a gag, seems like a stunt and make something rather beautiful out of it. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when they put together the room from Room yeah, out yeah. here and it really drove home like the emotions of the movie, Completely. just that tight space. Speaking of the sheet, uh, I, I did ask Casey right after I saw the movie, I was like, how much is that you under the sheet? He was like, I got some sheet time in. How, how, how much was is, is that, Casey, underneath that sheet? I will never define it by percentages, okay. <laughs> but I will say that we had to do some reshoots and pickups, and he was unavailable. Yeah. But to his credit, he was very begrudging in his unavailability. He wanted to be under it for the entire film. That's and uh, he bequeathed it to our art director, who is the same height and size and did a wonderful job. But, but Casey is definitely under it. And... Uh, he defined that role for us. So I don't want to, that's why I'll never say like, I mean, there are times in the movie where it cuts like shot, reverse shot, where mm-hmm. it's him, then not him, but you don't need to know that. It, Keep the, the, mo- the movie's cohesive. You never know. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a, 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 you know, a wonderful thing that he was willing to just embrace that concept so thoroughly that he wanted to wear it at all. And he- the fact that he came to Texas, put that, ridiculous costume on in 110 degree weather uh, is a testament to his devotion to the art form yeah well the movie's a ghost story it opens July 7th go see it like I said I think it's the best movie that I've seen this year so far so uh, I hope everybody enjoys it and thank you David for coming on the show really thanks appreciate so much for having it. me it really means a lot when I was little and we used to move all the time I would write these notes and I would fold them up really small and I would hide them what did they say? They were just like things I wanted to remember so that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there waiting.
What is it you like about this house so much? History? No place like home. There's a prison writes a novel. A songwriter writes a song. We do what we can to endure. We build our legacy piece by piece, and maybe the whole world will remember you, or maybe just a couple of people, but you do what you can to make sure you're still around after you're gone.